I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis, and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Okay, so here's a quick quiz question for you. What do Sir Ian McKellen, Stephen Fry, Noel Edmonds, Dominic Littlewood, Rod Stewart, Ben Stiller and me all have in common? No? Well, we've all had our own battles with prostate cancer. And today I'm making a special episode about this disease because of my own experiences and because it's something I think we all need to be a bit more aware of. The only problem with prostate cancer is that my producer can't say the word Melissa. What, what are we making this programme about? Prostate cancer. I've been practising. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> prostate cancer. That's right. Fact check. I'm so disappointed that you didn't fluff it again. We know that one in eight men in the UK will get prostate cancer and our risk of getting it rises as we get older. We also know that men can be pretty bad at getting medical concerns checked out, especially if they're down below at trouser level. So today I'm keen to talk frankly about all of this and hopefully shine a light on some of the things that are inside men's trousers. 
Uh, Melissa, you're going to ask me some questions, aren't you? It's my turn to be interviewed now. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you, Tony, because obviously this is a really personal one. So when did you first know about it, that you had it? Uh, It's about 10 years ago. 10 Uh, years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm still here and hale and hearty and everything's all right. Mm -hmm. Uh, My specialist always says, you won't die of it, you'll die with it, as long as I get it checked every four months or so. How did you know first? What happened was uh, I just went to a doctor because I was going to do a TV show and you always have to have an insurance check. Pretty sensible. And it was just at the time when those blood tests were coming out, which give you a whole load of different markers. I mean, virtually everybody has them nowadays, but this was a new thing at that time. And I thanked the guy and uh, had this blood test. Anyway, he came back and said that my PSA level was high. PSA? What's that? Well, it's it's the marker that says whether or not you're likely to have prostate cancer or not. Okay. See, I nearly said prostate cancer then, didn't I? Um, As you can imagine, I was a bit nervous, went to the specialist, uh, had a biopsy, and yes, he said I had prostate cancer. And at that moment, as you can imagine, my stomach dropped uh, down to the bottom of my boots. And I thought it was the most terrifying thing that had ever happened to me Mm. and and continued to think that for about a week. And then gradually, as I learnt more about other people who'd had it and that what you need to do, and you just got to be sensible about it, really. And uh, 10 years on, ba-dum, 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 here I am. That's amazing. So I've had all of this adventure, I suppose it is, with prostate cancer. But the ridiculous thing is, I really don't know very much about it at all. I've never sort of gone to studies. I've never asked the pertinent questions when I go and see my specialist. Like most people, when they go to a hospital, I'm in and out as quickly as I can. So I thought I would give myself the time to examine closely something which is actually very important to me. And that's I suppose what these podcasts are about they don't all have to be about the nice fun things in my life they can be about some of the more serious ones and this is it except that you struggle to say the word that is the name of the episode so so cheeky try one more thought you'd make a podcast about prostate cancer i've been practicing tony you're not going to get me out but listen i've got a surprise for you because a certain stephen fry has been very, very vocal about men getting checked yes, out. Yeah. He's got an, also got an experience. And so I wrote to him because mm. I thought we should try and get here from Stephen. Should yeah. I play you his message? He sent a message. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's hear it. Tony, my lovely old darling, how, how very good of you to invite me to join you for a podcast on your excellent series. And I'm... I'm really sorry to hear that you've joined the Prostate Club, exclusive and filled with marvellous people as it might be. As a disease, it's it's an affliction. It's it's the buggeriest of buggers, isn't it? All the indignities and indelicacies of it, the discomforts and, and, and unease. But the miracle of what can be done for it these days. You know, you and I, I'm sure, are both on the same mission to make sure men of a certain age check themselves well not check themselves but get themselves checked uh, and I wish I could be with you to, 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 to talk more myself but I'm afraid my diary is completely packed at the moment I'm just coming back from America where I've been working on a series and then I'm going straight to Poland and to Germany for a film uh, if it isn't too much of a bore uh, therefore um, maybe I can keep the invitation as a rain check as our American friends say and, and come and join you later but it's a wonderful series and I'm so pleased you're spreading the word about prostate to our fellow men <laughs> lots of love old thing 
You can just really hear Stephen's voice, can't you? Buggeriest of buggers. It's just so perfect. That's Stephen all over. He is such a sweet man. Isn't that lovely to have been bothered to do that? He could have just, you know, either done nothing or done a quick email. And he managed to plug two of the shows he's currently doing. So well done, mate. Well done. But he did say he's going to come on. So we're going to get it's him on true. series. We, yeah, we've got him on. It's, it's more than a promise, isn't it? It's it's practically a contractual arrangement, given that he's told us that he's going to. Can't wait. Which part of Brum do you come from? Uh, Borsal Heath. Do you? Yes. Oh, my God. So, uh, real inner city... That's why you're called Hash. Yes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm here with Professor Hashim Ahmed, or Hash, as I know you like to go by. Hash is the Chair of Urology and a Consultant Urological Surgeon at the Imperial College Healthcare Trust. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. First things first, I really, and this is ridiculous given how long I've had prostate cancer... I don't know anything about my prostate. I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what colour it is. I'm not quite okay. sure where it is. Was it not shown to you after it was taken out? Uh, they didn't <laughs> take it out. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. So yeah, where is it? So it's a small, they say walnut-sized uh, fleshy gland which wraps itself around the water passage Yeah. just after the bladder connects to the water passage uh, and it's a sexual organ uh, some men will have prostates not the size of walnuts but the size of tangerines uh, a few will have uh, prostates the size of a grapefruit because over time as you age the prostate starts to grow and it's a sexual organ it secretes fluid to nourish the semen uh, when you when you ejaculate and if you lose your prostate, as you assumed that I had, yeah. uh, does that mean you can't get erections? So the, the, the issue around the prostate is that there's lots of critical structures around it. So although it is not essential for anything other than secreting fluid that nourishes the semen, the sperm, surrounding it are critical structures that contribute to function. So around the prostate are nerves and blood vessels that supply um, sexual functions, so supply blood for erections um, and also for stimulation. Uh, There's a muscle that is very close to the prostate that wraps itself around the water passage and normally it's constantly contracting and it stops you from leaking urine. And just behind the prostate is the back passage literally a few millimetres away. Uh, And so if you remove the prostate or irradiate it or do some kind of treatment to the prostate, you can damage those other critical structures. Uh, And so if you have the prostate removed, there's a one in two chance you will have erection problems, one in five, one in ten chance you'll have leakage of urine, uh, and then back passage problems. When you said that it's a sexual organ, Mm -hmm. am I right in saying that you can actually stimulate it and get sexual pleasure in the way you can from some other areas? So uh, men who are at the receiving end of anal sex, for instance, get pleasure from the stimulation of the prostate, absolutely. Uh, And 
and some of them even pay good money for it. So, uh, you know, you can cut that out if you want. No, it's fine. No, no, it's um, lovely. I think you should even keep in, you can cut that out if you want to. You can do. So, yes, if you stimulate it directly, yeah. the, it, you do get pleasure out of it and, and you can climax an orgasm as a result of that. Why would that be? Why would we have created, as it were, a, a part of the body which gives a sexual stimulus but is so difficult to get at? So it, it's probably embryological. So why exactly, if you believe in God, it was designed in that way? I have no idea. But embryologically, it developed to be close to the sexual organ of the man. Uh, and it was also, it's also close to the testicles. So the testicles sit in the scrotum, but actually are connected with a tube on each side that deliver the sperm. So it's all very close, and obviously you have to have some kind of delivery mechanism, and the best way of delivering it is through the tube that d- takes the urine out as well. So I guess anatomically, and if, if embryologists, embryologists probably know better than I exactly why it developed in that way, but it, it had to be close to the testicles. The testicles have to hang out because they need to be at a lower temperature, uh, and therefore being in that midline lower part of the pelvis made absolute sense. I get very confused about leaky wee and prostate cancer. They're not the same thing at all, are they? And if you start having problems with your waterworks, that isn't actually a sign that you've got prostate cancer. So the last two or three decades, a lot of the campaigns are, uh, from charities and well-meaning people have said, if you've got symptoms, go and get tested. But actually... If you want to find prostate cancer early, you at a curable stage, then it doesn't cause symptoms. Uh, any the, symptoms at all? It doesn't cause any symptoms at all, unless it becomes larger and what we call locally advanced. It starts to push on the nerves. It starts to push on the muscles or the back passage or the water passage. But it would have to get pretty large for that. If you think of it about the prostate, there's a sort of an outer lining and most prostate cancers occur in that outer lining of the prostate called the peripheral zone. And so if most cancers occur on the outer lining and they're quite small when they start, then they don't often cause symptoms. And symptoms are caused, I alluded to it earlier, as you age, your prostate naturally grows larger. The equivalent for women are fibroids. And so the hormone testosterone in your system starts to stimulate the prostate to grow and over time the prostate just grows in a benign non-cancer way and that causes symptoms that causes you not to have good urine flow to get up at night but it often often doesn't mean cancer when i was first told that i had prostate cancer it was about the fact that my psi was up what what does that mean? So the PSA, which PSA, is the, did I say, did I you said PSI, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so prostate specific antigen, yeah. and it's a chemical that's released by the prostate into the seminal fluid. And what it does is it loosens the fluid so the sperm can swim better. And if you have more prostate tissue, you will have an elevated, a high PSA blood test when you measure it. If you have cancer, you will also 
in the majority, but not always, in the majority have an elevated high PSA blood test. Uh, and so if men want to get tested, if their GPs do a test for their prostate, they do a blood test, PSA, if that's generally above three, they get referred in. Generally above three, what's one then? What's zero? So this is the, this is the problem. There is no safe threshold for having a PSA level. We have to set it at some point, otherwise we would be over, over-diagnosing, we would be doing lots of invasive tests on lots of men. So we, the, the threshold of three was an arbitrary threshold. And we know... It's a line in the sand. It's a line it? in the sand. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you'd just be investigating millions of men all the time. And we know from a recent UK study that about 30% approximately of men who died from their prostate cancer actually had a PSA of less than three. So even by setting it at three, we are missing life-threatening cancers, but it has to be set at some point. Now, we'll probably talk a little bit later about how we can overcome that problem. Yeah. So, and and a lot of, not a lot of people talk about that issue with PSA. Everybody talks about it leads to lots of harms and over-diagnosis and over-treatment, but people forget that it's also missing quite important cancers. Yeah, yeah. My PSA at the moment tends to oscillate between 11 and 13 and a half. Is that mm. huge? Is it tiny? If you had someone in with that level of PSA, what would your reaction be? So if it was for the first time, it would be an immediate MRI scan. Yeah. So you'd go through this scanner that looks like a big donut, um, and we would image your prostate. And we'd get some very detailed scans and pictures of the prostate and see if there's something going on. If there isn't anything suspicious going on, then we say, well, what else is causing that PSA to go up? Hopefully, we would have done a urine test before that scan to make sure there's no infection, because infection can make the PSA go up. But inflammation of the prostate can also make, so prostatitis can also make the PSA go up, and a large prostate. So if you have a very large prostate, because you've had, you know, over your life, lots and lots of testosterone flowing through your blood, causing the prostate to enlarge and become, uh, you know, grow in size. That's probably what That's probably you. Um, then, um, then that will also lead to your PSA being very high. And so yeah. we adjust. The nice thing about MRI is we can know how large your prostate is and adjust the PSA level according to the size. Is there a direct correlation between the amount of PSA uh, markers that you've got and the possibility of having a really nasty prostate cancer? Yes, generally. Generally. So the higher the PSA there it is, the more aggressive and more advanced the cancer is. Now, there's always exceptions to the rules. What can sometimes happen with very aggressive cancers is that the biology of it changes and they become so different to prostate cells that they stop secreting PSA. And in those men, you can have a really nasty cancer, but the PSA is really low uh, and they're difficult. You've just used the phrase, a really nasty cancer, and I guess that's why we're here. If it was just a minor disease or almost a 
benign disease, it wouldn't be worth talking about. But I think a lot of men do feel quite threatened that if it gets out of control, some very nasty things will happen. But I'm not sure that many of us know what those nasty things are. Yeah, so I think we have to put it into context. It is an important disease. Uh, Over 10,000 men every year die from it, but we diagnose just over 50,000 every year with it. So there is a good proportion that are diagnosed early and in a curable state. And in those men, there are now a number of options for treatment that we, we use in a bespoke manner. In the past, if you had a diagnosis of prostate cancer, um, we would either watch it and not do anything, um, termed watchful waiting. Um, what we were waiting for was effectively for the man to start having symptoms, start to suffer, um, and then treat it. And that strategy was not bad, but obviously had problems with it. Um, The alternative was to have the whole prostate removed, what's called a prostatectomy, or have it x-rayed and irradiated, so radiotherapy. And there was quite a gulf between those two approaches. Uh, One didn't have the side effects of the treatment, but men were getting anxious, they were having cancer not treated and their families were getting anxious. And on the other spectrum, the other side of the spectrum, you were treating the whole prostate. And if you go right back to our early conversation, um, if you treat the whole prostate, you will have significant consequences in a lot of men from that. So that one in two erection problems, the one in five to one in 10 uh, urine leakage problems, back passage problems again in about one in 10, one in 20 from radiotherapy. So a lot of people argued and still argue that the consequences of those treatments are worse than the consequences of the disease itself. And that is quite a difficult thing because it's been branded into doctor's psyche in textbooks, in guidelines, in their training for the last three decades. And I guess one of the things that I'd like to say is that it's it's actually much better news than that nowadays, in that we are much better at treating those men who do need to be treated. But the one thing that you've not told me, and it seems to me to be And it seems to me you've been incredibly honest about uh, a lot of the stuff to do with it, is how horrible it can be. What is it that it can do for you? What is this terror that we are all investing so much time and energy into? Yeah, so ultimately cancer, the issue with cancer is that it can start to progress, grow, and if it grows locally, it can cause all of those urinary problems. It can cause a blockage to your bladder, can't pass urine, you need an emergency operation, can start causing bleeding and pain and discomfort. And, and, and those, those are nasty symptoms when it becomes advanced. If it spreads, then it will have all of those consequences of spreading to other organs, uh, to bone initially and mainly, and it can start to affect the bone function. The bone you need for your immune system, 
It also produces those red blood cells that allow you to carry oxygen around the, the body. Uh, and therefore, if you have cancer going into the bone, then it will start to affect the bone function and your general well-being. You won't be able to fight off against against infections. Your immune system will be suppressed. You'll feel very tired, lethargic, and eventually it will just overwhelm you because your body's resources are being sucked out by this malignancy that's inside your, your body. Uh, so it's a nasty disease if it goes unchecked. In those men where we know it will become nasty if it goes unchecked and we're, we're much better at identifying those now so let's go back to the checking because it's the checking that mm. has been my experience mostly two checks and the first one which i think is the elephant in the room the finger up the bum yeah yeah what is that test for so it, it, it's traditional it's embedded into people's psyche again if you look at the evidence it actually offers very little value. So everybody talks about doing the digital rectal examination, and it does put people off. It puts a lot of men off, and certain cultures, such as the uh, such as men from the black community, are particularly put off by the rectal examination. Uh, there have been studies showing this. So a test that is firstly just a finger and just touches maybe a quarter of the surface of the prostate, the surface. It can't feel the inside of the prostate if there's a tumour there. It doesn't feel the other three quarters of the prostate. Uh, and it's a finger. Uh, and, you know, no matter how good a finger is, uh, even if it's long enough to get to feel the prostate, you're still not going to feel these small tumours. It's a lucky dip. It's a lucky dip. Uh, and so it's very inaccurate. It's not inaccurate. It's just not very good. I've had the finger up me three times a year. So, yeah. so for 10 years, so 30 times. And are you saying it's been a waste of time <laughs> probably, for both yeah. parties? Probably. So th- we're, we're again, we, you know, us, us doctors, are, uh, our practice is often dictated by the tigers in our, in our career. So if, if a doctor has missed one case where the PSA blood test was low and the rectal examination could actually feel uh, uh, the tumour and nodule on the prostate. That one case out of hundreds and thousands will then dictate your practice. There are also people like me going around saying you should do a rectal examination. If you don't put your finger in it, you'll put your foot in it, um, is the adage, old adage that people say when they go around speaking at conferences. Uh, and It's a good gag. Uh, it is. Uh, and, you know, there are people who become medical legal experts and they'll go to court and say, well, actually, if, it, if a, a rectal examination was done, then it might have spotted it. So, but the evidence is quite clear. Uh, and the evidence would back up anybody who doesn't do it. And so if men are worried about the rectal examination, they don't have to have it. They can just have the blood test. That's probably the nicest message that's going to come out <laughs> of this podcast. It probably will. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. And my special guest this week, leading urologist and urological surgeon, Professor Hash Ahmed. What about the uh, the scan, the MRI scan? It always seems to me that it's a really crude machine. It's so big. We're only talking about my prostate, which, as you say, is the size of some form of nut, and yet I have to go right inside it. I I have to be in it for 40 minutes. It is so ridiculously noisy that they give me music to listen to to calm me down. I can't hear the music. (laughs) Even if it's Led Zeppelin, I can't hear it. Um, Is all that necessary? It's it's a bit of encounters of the third kind, isn't it? Um, so, So let me just take you back only six, seven years. Only six, seven years in the UK, almost every single man with an elevated PSA who was referred to people like me in hospitals was was being placed on a couch on their left side, a probe, an ultrasound probe put into their back passage. Now, if you think a finger is bad, then imagine the a, a ultrasound probe going in. And with or without local anaesthetic, biopsies were taken. So needles were being placed in the, into the prostate and samples taken at random. So you were taking samples from the prostate, about 10 or 12, and hoping to hit the cancer if it was there. You had no idea whether that man had cancer or anything suspicious in their prostate, and the vast majority didn't, but you were biopsying the hell out of these prostates just in case. So that's what was happening just under half a, uh, over half a decade ago. I had that. So, I had it, and I had yeah. a, a general anaesthetic. Until this day, I hadn't realised they'd gone up my bum. So they used to do back passage biopsies routinely. Now I never they, asked. They, they used to do that without an MRI scan. Nowadays, you have the ultrasound scan, but the biopsies are taken through the skin. Um, but the big impact that MRI has made, so what I would say is... Uh, it's such a great tool. We'll accept its, you know, its shortcomings because what it allows you to do suddenly you can see the prostate and you can see something suspicious. Yeah. And if you can see the prostate and there's nothing suspicious, uh, in my practice, about forty to fifty percent of men don't have a biopsy, and only five years ago they would have. And that five years ago, when we did that study um, uh, called Promise. Um, that transformed care in the UK, Europe, and the entire world. It in what pre- way? Because suddenly, if you have a million men having a biopsy every year in Europe, another million in the US, about thirty to four sorry three hundred to four hundred thousand of those men, if they have an MRI scan first, won't need to have a biopsy. Uh, and so, you avoid a biopsy in 
a large minority, 30 to 40 percent of men, who you would otherwise harm by doing a biopsy. A biopsy carries risks of infection, bleeding, pain, all of that sort of thing. But the big issue with a random biopsy, if you take random samples from your prostate, you will start to pick up those little, tiny, low-risk areas of cancer that a third of all men above the age of 50 have and will never know about, will never suffer any side effects from, and will never die from it. Now, that's a third of all men above the age of 50. doesn't matter what their PSA is. If you're taking random samples from the prostate, you'll start picking those tiny little bits of disease, which some of us are arguing shouldn't even be called cancer now. And that is the biggest problem in the whole debate. You start picking those up, you tell a man you've got cancer, that man completely freaks out, his family freak out, and they end up having those treatments which have all of the harms but no benefit over, ten, over their lifetime. It doesn't improve their life expectancy. If these tiny little things aren't cancer, what, what are they? So they are clearly abnormal cells. They look like cancer under a microscope. So my pathology colleagues, two-thirds to three-quarters of them, say, don't talk such nonsense. They are cancer. Let's just call them what they are. And I turn around to them, well, they don't behave like cancer. Two of the hallmarks of cancer are that they have to grow and they have to spread. These areas just sit there doing nothing for the whole life of that man. And so they don't meet two of the hallmarks of cancer. So maybe uh, and uh, maybe you should start rethinking what you call cancer under a microscope. They are clearly abnormal cells and they might need to be monitored, uh, what we call active surveillance, but they should not be treated. And if we can convince more men not to have treatment for these tiny low-risk areas of cancer and harm be conferred on them by us treating them, then we will, we will make huge strides in convincing the naysayers about screening for prostate cancer that we are behaving ourselves. We're not, you know, physicians who just want to operate yeah. and make lots of money in, in the US or whatever uh, and causing all this harm. So, and that will allow us to get away from this sort of nihilistic position where, oh, we shouldn't find any prostate cancer, we shouldn't test for it because it's all a waste of time, it causes lots of harm and no benefit, That's, which is not true either. Before we go on to some other aspects, can I just press you a little bit on the uh, the MRI scanning? Yes. Do they have to be as big, as noisy, and so totally immersive? Uh, so at the moment, yes, because they have all of these coolants and they have all of these moving parts inside them. They're inside this donut, there are things whizzing around, uh, taking images from different angles. So at the moment, yes, there are new technologies now which... Uh, have miniaturized scanners so there are now small magnets that don't need all of that coolant going through them uh, and are less noisy less cumbersome uh, we're, we're looking at one of them to see if it is as good at guiding biopsies for prostate uh, diagnosis for instance 
Uh, we, we, we call it the suitcase MRI, but it's not quite a suitcase. Um, but it is very, very small. It can be plugged into a normal uh, 240 volt, you know, volt plug. And what about the length of time? So the length of time is coming down. So one of the things we did two or three years ago, we, we ran a study called Prostagram. Uh, and that was to look at whether we could use a 10-minute scan in the community instead of a PSA test. So moving towards the breast screening paradigm, you know, where you image the organ. Uh, and actually most screening programs for cancer, you, you, you mm. try and see the tumour, whether it's by a telescope with colonoscopy for colorectal cancer, lung cancer, you do CT scans, breast cancer, you do mammograms. We don't do that in prostate. And so we wanted to really shift the needle and see if we could come up with something that could visualize the prostate and the cancers. And the preliminary results in a few hundred men showed that it was almost twice as good as PSA in picking up the life-threatening cancers without increasing the number of men having biopsies and actually reduced the number of men who were diagnosed with these tiny little um, areas that we call cancer at the moment, but aren't probably cancer and certainly don't behave in that way. I think one of the things that frustrates me most uh, about medicine and my prostate in particular, is the lag in time between coming up with a new way of dealing with it and actually that being realised in the community. I always thought, hey, they found a little lightweight thing that they can just sit next to me and I can be in and out in 10 minutes and you can have one in Tesco's and there'll be queues and everything. But it's going to take years and years and years, isn't it? It's going to take years. the, The reason particularly for this, but anything in medicine is, again, we're a conservative bunch, uh, but that's not a bad thing. It can sometimes be bad. It holds back progress. Uh, and secondly, all of this sort of evidence that we need, we do need to show that it is either better or just as good. And if it is just as good, what is the advantage of doing this new approach? It has to be less cost or less harm. Uh, with the prostagram MRI type of approach, we can do better, we can reduce the harms. The only thing that's left is to... There's two things left to prove. One is, how, how do we do it across the whole country and are the results as reproducible across the whole country? And that's a big question. Um, you know, we, we all talk about postcode lotteries, but unfortunately, the, you know, the NHS is not a homogenous being. There are differences in care and expertise across the country. Um, so we have to show that it can be reproduced. And then the big, the big question is cost, or what we like to couch, cost effectiveness. Yes. Um, and that needs a big study. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of men to be recruited into a new study, which will cost millions and millions. And isn't the frustration of that, that that study could last five or ten years, and by the time the study has been finished, some new innovation could have come along, which makes that whole series of tests virtually redundant? It could do, but again, going back to the slow progress that we make, um, I doubt um, our progress will be speeded up for that new test either. So uh, one of the frustrations I have is that people keep on using this argument oh, there's just something around the corner. You, you speak to a scientist in a lab and he says, oh, I've got something, re- I've got found this new molecule and in about 
four years time it'll be ready for that study just hang on uh, you know i was like no we can't hang on we've found something that really works we can look at this new molecule or this new panel or this new gene later but we should crack on we shouldn't stop progress because there's something around the corner we'll just constantly be chasing our tail and so there's that frustration people say there's something coming around the corner obviously a lot of men who get diagnosed with prostate cancer they want to encourage the uk to adopt more testing screening program for prostate cancer but again if we don't deliver that big study it is frustrating it's 10 years and 15 years maybe of doing that study and i've had men say to me but that's that's tens of thousands of deaths that we could have avoided yeah. if we just did it the problem is we won't be able to just do it we we won't be able to convince the regulatory bodies we won't be able to convince any government of any color um to adopt a national program without another big study okay so if it's going to take a long time to get that study done and the new innovations coming in in the meantime what can we do to stop ourselves getting prostate cancer so i i think the old problem is still present where men are probably more reluctant than women to go and see their doctor to talk about these things i think it's just you know we are getting better you know the metrosexual uh revolution that's that's all well and good but the majority haven't yet touched on that revolution and still feel very reluctant to go and see their gp um and there's lots of cultural reasons as to why they do that you know they not as men i don't think like to be vulnerable um what i would say is that you know you we spoke about it you don't need to have a rectal examination you just need to have a blood test and just say no to the rectal examination yeah. nobody's going to force you to have it so i think whilst we're waiting for that big study awareness and men if they're concerned going to have a chat with their gp any gps listening to this please i'm not you know you know criticizing what's happening in general practice um but equally i don't want to overwhelm uh, i i have been criticized for encouraging lots of men to visit their gps and people have written in you know in eminent uh, journals and magazines that well if we're going to see all of this wave of men who want to psa test what shall we not see um I guess that's you aren't the only person. Let's be honest. No, Virtually true. every television program, no, true. Uh, you, true. W- you watch the presenter if he's a, of a certain age will have Absolutely. one of those little badges Absolutely. advocating prostate Absolutely. testing. So, 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 uh, and there's been massive awareness campaigns by the charity Prostate Cancer UK, Movember, uh, other smaller charities. There's there've been the sad case of uh, Bill Turnbull, which has raised awareness massively. The you, you may or may not have heard of the. Turnbull Fry effect so the two of them being diagnosed almost at the same time and talking about it very openly led to a massive spike in referrals to the point we were overwhelmed we couldn't cope uh, and again when Bill Turnbull unfortunately passed away uh, the the presenters and the BBC were clearly very pro raising awareness mm. they wanted to do something in Bill's honor and memory Uh, and there's been a really big push and that has led to a sustained increase in referrals of elevated PSA. What about the way you conduct your life, the the things you eat? If I run 2 and 1/2 miles a day, 
is there less chance of me getting prostate cancer, that kind of thing? Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence that exercise generally for cancer, but just not just prostate cancer, but for cancer generally, has quite a profound effect. So, yes, so aerobic exercise, just do whatever you can. I mean, just do 10 or 15 minutes every two or three days uh, and build it up slowly. So aerobic exercise, uh, generally eating healthy, but things that are specific for prostate, which have reasonable evidence that they help protect the prostate are things like pomegranate uh, and you can buy juice or the fruit or even if you'll you know want to have pills that have pomegranate extract in it cooked tomatoes the cooking seems to release a chemical called lycopene and lycopene seems to be protective to the prostate mixed nuts without the salt i always say to my patients because you don't want to increase your high blood pressure risk Uh, green tea Again, if you hate the stuff, just put a bit of honey or something in it to make it palatable. I so wasn't expecting this. I'd written down a note in front of me to say to you, if I eat pumpkin seeds, will that mean I'm less likely to I'm really for it. I'm I'm really for all of these things because I do think diet... So, look, you know, the evidence is very clear. Uh, 5% of prostate cancers are genetic and you don't have a choice. The others are sporadic. They're sporadic mutations in your cells. And therefore, why do these mutations occur? There has to be environmental factors. And we can't control where we live, generally. Um, We can't probably control the environment around us, but we can control how much oxygen is being pumped through our body through aerobic exercise. And we can control what nutrients we we, we pump through our body as well. So, you know, th- these things are controllable. And there is, I wouldn't say there's massive evidence, but there's reasonable evidence to, for me to recommend every time I see a patient with prostate diseases to end my consultation and talk about these f- uh, five things. Tell to me those five things again. So one thing I missed out was brassica vegetables. So which, cauli- which are they? cauliflower, broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Uh, and to eat more of those. So cooked tomatoes, yeah. brassica vegetables, green tea, mixed nuts, and pomegranate. And aerobic, aerobic exercise. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, again, there's some conflicting evidence that regular sexual activity, ejaculating, may help clear the system. <laughs> may also be protected but the evidence isn't that clear uh, and i do have men with it's their worth a try yeah <laughs> i do have men with their partners suddenly perk up and and their partners look at me thinking i wish you hadn't said that but um but uh, again i say to men it's not a prescription for sex uh, you can do it on your own if you wish <laughs> so not supposed to get the giggles in an interview <laughs> prostate cancer i have prostate cancer How long am I likely to survive? Many, many years. So if you have low-risk prostate cancer, it's a slow-growing tumour. In fact, it's so sedate that it probably, in the vast majority of cases, doesn't grow at all and certainly doesn't spread. And in those men, the old adage is absolutely true. You will die of something else before you die of your prostate cancer. A tiny minority do change the cancer changes and becomes a little bit more aggressive but you don't lose the window of curability you might need treatment a bit later and then you survive years and years and years if you have medium risk prostate cancer 
it's still good news because it's a slow-growing tumour. We generally believe it does grow, though. It's, if you left it long enough, it would start to grow and spread. So we generally treat medium risk disease, but you've got months and even a few years to monitor it if you want to. And then high-risk disease, again, as long as it hasn't spread, you've got many years of survival after treatment, but you do need to be treated and you need to be treated soon rather than monitoring it. And there's a number of treatments for that. Over the last decade, men who have cancer that spread elsewhere to the bone, for instance, we've in the UK and elsewhere, US and Australia, there have been there has been huge progress in treating those men. So we have lots of new treatments that has prolonged survival in men where the cancer has spread. Obviously not as long as men where the cancer hasn't spread, but we're still talking about a few years. Um, so it's still counted in the number of years. I'm confused about testing. On one hand, I feel as though you've said that in most cases, the symptoms aren't going to arise. But on the other hand, you're saying it's important for people to get tested. How do they know when to get tested? So that's the, that's the problem we have at the moment in the UK. There is no national screening programme. So if men uh, want to get tested, they have to listen to your podcast or listen to Stephen Fry talking about it or look at a tweet or see something about prostate cancer or their family might, might be their partner or daughter or son, and they might say to them, go and get a test. And they might need to be, you know, uh, walked to the GP in order to get that test. Um, that's a problem because the vast majority of men will not go and have a test because they don't know about it, they're not being asked to go. And sometimes when they do go, uh, the GPs will try and put them off from having a PSA test because GPs are naturally concerned for their patients and don't want them to come to harm. And the GPs have been trained and their guidance tells them that there's a lot of harms from PSA testing. So it's, it's a bit of a muddle at the moment. If you hear this podcast, uh, if you see my tweets or if you see somebody else's tweets and you are concerned, you should go and have a chat with your GP about the pros and cons of getting a PSA blood test to check for prostate cancer. And what I can reassure you is that in the UK, if you do get referred into hospital, the pathway for diagnosing and treating prostate cancer is much better than what you might have read about the harms. We were really good, I think, in the UK at not harming men in the way that was happening before. So I, I can reassure GPs and men about that. The elephant in the room is that that awareness is patchy. And so only a few men will hear about it. You know, it won't be to the scale that we need to impact survival. So ultimately, we're going to need a screening program. We're going to need that letter that drops through the uh, door and says, Dear Sir, we would like to invite you to have a prostogram. But creating a nationwide screening programme is going to take a long time. Isn't it? We have to take our colleagues with us. We have to provide further evidence that we really are not harming men and we 
are maintaining the cancer survival benefit in screening. We know that it does improve survival, but we need to show that it's again, but with less harm. We need to show that it's cost effective. And then once I or my colleagues deliver that study in 10 or 15 years time, probably 15, because it does take that long, I'm afraid, to the government as a package, it's then up to those stakeholders and lobbyists to push for the investment. And that will be a massive investment. But we've done it for other cancers, and we've done it for breast cancer, importantly, which is the closest analogy. Uh, It only affects one sex, one gender. uh, And therefore, that lobbying afterwards, ultimately it's going to be a political decision whether that investment occurs it is a massive task after I provide the evidence. Before we finish, there's one question that I'm asking all my guests. I'm slightly embarrassed by it, I must admit. Do you have a cunning plan for the future of our understanding of prostate cancer? So um, I'll start by being sycophantic. Um, I, I wanted to say this at the beginning, actually. It's, it's a real honour to meet you. I, I, I've watched your, uh, the, 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 the Blackadder series, so I'm, I'm really, really pleased to be here. Thanks. Uh, uh, Melissa, uh, can you keep and, that bit in? Uh, and, you know, you, you are one of my uh, childhood heroes, so it's fantastic. So, so, um, so my cunning plan, and I think it's going to work, is back to the harms of treatment. So we can actually target individual areas of cancer without cutting the skin, without a big operation, without using radiation. We can heat or freeze individual areas of the cancer. It's called focal therapy. And we think about 10 to 12,000 men every year could have this, and only about six, 700 men are, because the majority aren't being told. And if you can spot weld those individual areas of cancer, a bit like a lumpectomy rather than mastectomy, you don't remove the whole breast if you can possibly avoid it. That revolution in prostate cancer occurred a few years ago and it's really taking off now. Because the reason is survival isn't impacted by doing this. So it's the outcomes from your cancer survival is, are the same over 10 years, but your side effects from those traditional radical treatments. And we actually call them radical because they really go for it. And, you know, it's worth the side effects because we're saving your life. Well, actually, it probably isn't in those 10 to 12,000 men. And if they can avoid the side effects, fantastic, because we can still treat their cancer. And the side effects, when you spot weld individual tumours in the prostate, is five to tenfold lower almost virtually no incontinence and about 5 to 10% erection problem risk. Back passive problems, again, virtually non-existent. Uh, And so that's my cunning plan. And it's causing a lot of controversy. Surgeons who want to operate like to operate and they don't like to do something different. Radiotherapists like using their big radiotherapy bunkers and blasting the tumours because they think, you know, cancers need to be blasted and treated aggressively so it's it's winding everybody up but that's not a bad thing so the positive i can take away from this podcast is i'm more likely to die with my prostate cancer rather than from it 
and that if something does go tits up, it's very likely I can be spot welded. I hope so, absolutely. I'll walk away from this interview happy. Fantastic. Thank you. If you're concerned about prostate cancer or prostate problems, then you can find out more on the Prostate Cancer UK website, where they provide a range of information and support so you can choose the services that work for you. You can find them online at prostatecanceruk.org. That's prostatecanceruk.org. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news at CunningCastPod. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my Cunning Cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald and it's a Zinc Media production. If you do not wish to accept this call, please hang up now. Today, there are 2,916 people trapped in British prisons on the IPP sentence, many for minor crimes. Once again, the system is just leaving me to rot. None of them know when they're getting out, or whether their IPP sentence could actually mean life in prison. There's no doubt that there are people in prison on IPP sentences who, if they were sentenced today, they would be on a determinate sentence, serve a year, two years, and they would be out of prison. And that's a scandal. I'm Sam Asamadu. Over the course of this podcast series, I'm digging deep into the plight of IPP prisoners and their families. I feel like I have a skeleton of a brother left. To find out what has gone wrong with his sentence... This sentence has finished him already. He's done his sentence now at least eight times over. And shine a light into the dark corners of the IPP prisoner story. It's a bit of a Kafkaesque maze, really, which a lot of these IPPs seem to be on. Trapped, the IPP prisoner scandal. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can find me and the team on Twitter or Instagram at trapped underscore pod.